A fun fact, that was the first song played on guitar when I was in high school. And you would have thought it was the abomination of desolation in that sanctuary. I was 14 years old and the church was not happy. Uh, but uh, thank you for just bringing me back to uh, my first love when I was just a, a young believer in Christ and learning uh, to love Jesus with my heart and with my voice. If you have Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Ezekiel uh, chapter 14. Ezekiel is um, past halfway, like 55% of the way through the Bible. You'll find Psalms in the middle. If you keep going over, you'll see a huge book uh, named Isaiah, then a smaller book named Jeremiah, and then another one uh, named Ezekiel. Ezekiel uh, was a prophet, and he is probably the most colorful prophet um, in his language. Uh, The book of Ezekiel is at least PG-13, with chapter 16 probably... um, Above that, um, God talks to Ezekiel in very graphic language, and then Ezekiel talks to the people in very graphic language, and he is going to help us uh, see the true heart of sin uh, today as we study his words. So Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, listen to God's word. It says this, some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and they've put stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all of your detestable practices. When any of the Israelites or foreigners residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord." And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people, Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you to speak to us. And we need you to speak clearly by your Bible and by your spirit. Because apart from you talking to us, apart from you melting our hearts from softening us, apart from you removing the scales upon our hearts, apart from you replacing our hearts of stone, we will not accept the words you have to speak to us. We will uh, sidestep it. We will justify it. We will rage against you. And if you were here, we would nail you to a tree again. 
but we need you. We need your accurate, we need your diagnosis. We need you to remind us again that apart from you, we are dying, that we are spiritually dead, that you would diagnose us and tell us the truth. And even if it hurts, even if the diagnosis is severe, we will submit to the healing process that you might restore us in grace, that we might again not be slaves to sin, but we might be children of God the Father Most High, that we would not be um, sons of the devil, but we would be brothers to Jesus Christ, that we would not be agents of evil in the world, but we would be agents of transformation, bringing about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We ask today in confidence because of Jesus who suffered and died to rescue us and give us the right of prayer. We pray this in him and through him and for his glory alone. Amen. Friends, I feel like preaching today, and that's why I put a chair there, because we're going to be here for a while, and I don't know if my legs can hold up that long, so I'm just going to sit and talk. Just kidding just kidding. No, that's not there. No, we've been talking about um, the Reformation, about the gospel, which was recovered in uh, 1500s uh, by Christian men and women like Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and Luther Zwing- and, uh, Zwingli and uh, Simon Menos and then uh, and, and women who, who joined up to these movements, um, one of the neat things that came out of that is that n- women were given, again, uh, more standing in the church because um, the priests, were, the, the pastors and the priests were able to marry. And so uh, Martin Luther takes a wife and he takes just a champion of a wife who puts up with all of his idiosyncrasies. We've been talking about Martin Luther who, and we've summarized that Keeley did just a minute ago of the truth that was recovered, the truth that is again taken hold at the heart of the church. And I, when I say that, I mean um, in some sense the Reformation worked uh, that uh, the Roman uh, Catholic Church uh, now uh, can, has moved um, to, to believe in grace alone um, in salvation by grace alone and faith alone and Jesus alone. And so we as a church have been in many ways reformed. There's still plenty of work to do because we're still a church of sinners uh, all around the world. But this, the gospel that was rediscovered in the uh, 15th and 16th century is that you and I, you and I are sinners and that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. And the only way we really know that and know anything for sure is through the scriptures alone. And we've been wrestling with that for the last two weeks. The first week we talked about that gospel, what it is and what it is not. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then last week we talked away about, about the Bible, how the gospel helps us to rethink the way we approach the Bible. That the Bible is not a list of rules. That the Bible is corrective lenses that help us see the world rightly. That the Bible is a, is, is a gift to help remind us who we are and who God is and what in the world um, we are about. And we are coming today to how we need to rethink what sin is and what repentance is. You see, Martin Luther, when he rediscovers the gospel in the Bible of all places, uh, Martin Luther was a monk and he was assigned to teach the Bible and through studying the Bible, he came to see uh, that he could not save himself through his own actions, that he could not be uh, sorry enough or contrite enough, he could not be moral enough or ethical enough, that none of that added up and that he needed some other way of salvation. And so he saw in the gospel, specifically in Romans chapter one, uh, verse 16 and 17, that the gospel is that Jesus has brought 
brought Christ's righteousness to us and he gives it to us freely when we put our trust in him. When we put our trust in Jesus, we are now clothed in Christ and covered with all his goodness. And that, friends, that, that renovates every other area of our life. That then has implications for all areas of our life. And we saw that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther uh, went to the local cathedral and he um, submitted a list of 95 theses for academic debate. 95 uh, theses about academic, about theological and practical errors the church was committing. And you may, uh, if you're like me, assume that number one on that list is going to be something, um, it's going to be something about the five solas. That it's going to be something about uh, grace alone, through faith alone, and, and Christ Jesus alone. That it's going to be something about the scriptures. It's going to be something about any of that. But it's not. The first thesis that Martin Luther puts up there is this. The first thesis says that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, quote, repent, Jesus willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. The first thing that Martin Luther wants to discuss, the first thing, the first point that he wants to get right is what is repentance and what needs to be repented of. And he can tell you the error that, that he's, he's specifically addressing in thesis number two. Thesis number two is this, quote, this word, meaning repentance, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is to confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. You see, what Martin Luther and it's talking about he inhabits a world. He lived in a world in medieval Christianity where sin was thought of as, as discrete, concrete um, actions, failures, mistakes, concrete things. And the way you dealt with it is you went to a priest and you, you listed out these concrete things that I, I slapped my kid's sister and I cheated on my tax return and I didn't eat my green beans and I lied to mom about not eating my green beans. Father, forgive me, I have sinned. And the father would say, I forgive you. Now go and say six Hail Marys, three Our Fathers, and give um, 64 cents to the poor. And you would do that, and it would cancel out, and your debits and your credits would, um, would line up, and your account would be, again, uh, wiped clean and set up. And Martin Luther says we can't think of sin that way. We cannot, we cannot think of sin specifically or, or solely as individual actions, individual mistakes, individual uh, errors. We can't think of it as just breaking individual rules and then calculate those things. That's not at heart what sin is. You see, he, and so he starts off by saying, if you get what sin is wrong, if you mess up on that, then you will mess up on repentance and faith because you will um, be thinking of individual things of which you need to repent of. And he says, repentance is a whole life thing because sin is a whole life thing. My entire sin, my entire life has been invaded by this. Christianity uh, teaches that out of that all of our actions, everything I say and do flows forth from what or who I worship. That all of my external actions grow out of, the, out of a heart level worship. That's why Jesus can say something like, a good tree puts forth good fruit, but a bad tree puts forth bad fruit. If you want good fruit, first make the tree good, and then the fruit will be good also. But friends, we tend to think of just uh, sin as breaking rules of specific bad actions. And so instead of taking Jesus' advice, what many of us who grew up in a Christian, uh, grew up in the church, grew up in a religious or a moral or a morally conservative household uh, do, is, in, is like what 
Let's say I had a lemon tree. I did have a lemon tree one time in Zambia. We had a lemon tree. And let's say I don't want a lemon tree. I want an apple tree. And so every morning I go out there and I pull all the lemons off that tree. And then I take a bag full of apples and I tie the apples to that tree. Do I have an apple tree? No, I don't have an apple tree. I have a lemon tree with apples on top of it. And what most of us do as moralists, apart from the gospel, when we think of sin as concrete things that we have to avoid to earn God's favor, and then we try to to do more good things, is all we are doing is that same thing. We're trying to cut the lemons out of our life and then tack on these apples. And Jesus wants to address us at a heart level, at a heart level, because he's saying those, those lemons in your life, those sins in your life are actually symptoms of what's on your heart, symptoms of what you worship, symptoms of what is taken root in your life let me explain it first using my wife's favorite illustration and then I'm gonna tell you it's not biblical and I'm gonna tell you uh, the biblical illustration and my wife loves to explain the gospel this way and it's correct it's absolutely correct so I'm not making fun of my wife I was just um, teasing her a little bit my wife will say at the, at the heart in every human heart in every human heart there is a Jesus-shaped hole there's a Jesus-shaped hole in every single human heart and every single one of us has this place inside of us that has to be filled with something the problem is all of us are trying to fill it with something other than Jesus at least till we find him and we're trying to put um, uh, boys and relationships into there we're trying to put um uh we're trying to put a money or wealth into that thing or we're trying to fill up our heart trying to fill this insecure void inside of us through success or status through popularity um through 200 pairs of shoes the problem is i can't buy enough shoes to fill the heart in my heart the hole in my heart i can't date enough uh, girls to fill the hole in my heart i cannot get enough compliments to fill the hole in my heart and so i'm always left fighting off insecurity fighting off fear fighting off a need for more and more Uh, this was portrayed graphically at the end of chariots of fire you remember in the end of chariots of fire uh, you have um Harold Abrams, and he's laying on the bed, and he's getting the massage, uh, getting ready for the race, and he says, in a few minutes, I will step out on there, and I will look up, and, and I'll see the finish line a thousand, 100 meters away, and I will have 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. There's this sense of which I need that. He's trying to put success and an Olympic medal inside the hole in his heart, and it won't work. It will not work. That there is a hole there. The Bible doesn't talk so much about a hole in our heart as a throne in our heart. The Bible says that the human heart, that God built humanity with a throne inside your heart. That God has put this throne at the center of your being and God put it there that he might reign in that, that he might be the, the pivot around which your whole life would turn. He might be the fulcrum on which your life would balance, that he might be the foundation that would give stability and meaning and satisfaction and worth and value to you. That he built that there so that you and him would have intimate connection and relationship and fellowship and joy and you would do stuff together and you would partner together to build an incredible world. But the Bible says that you and I have rejected God and that we have kicked him off the throne of our hearts. That we have constantly, we are constantly deposing what, um, deposing God, and instead we're putting something created, something else on the throne of our hearts. And the Bible is refreshingly nuanced about this and very consistent at this point. The Bible wants to say that all of your sinful behaviors, all of those rule breaking things you do, um, from lying uh, to gossip to malice and envy to revenge, all of that is symptomatic that something other than God is on the throne of your heart, the throne of my heart. 
We sin because we have deposed God and replaced him this. And this is what uh, Ezekiel chapter 14 is, is addressing. He says, the people have set up idols in their hearts and they put stumbling block before their eyes. That's a crazy sentence. No other a religion could talk about setting an idol up in your heart because an idol by definition is a statue of a God. An idol is a statue of a God. And in many ways, I wish we couldn't set up idols in our hearts because if they were just metal statues or wooden statues, they would be so easy to see and so easy to destroy and so easy to root out in my life. I could just go into that room in my house and I could cast down my idols and I could shatter them and I could smash them. The problem is they're in my heart. And so often I am blind to them and I see them. I cannot see them in my heart. And so he says um, in Ezekiel uh, 14 that they have set up idols in their heart. Because the truth is, friends, that throne inside my heart will not stay vacant. It cannot. I cannot function with a vacant heart throne. I will put something there. And if it's not God, then what flows forth will be bad fruit. Let me see if I can show you this really practically. My sister Laura just read for you the Ten Commandments. Most of us think of the Ten Commandments as ten rules. Ten rules never to be broken. And if we could just live by that, the world would be fine and and great and good and dandy. And so we think of sin as as breaking the rules, as just breaking the commandments, so just breaking the commandments. But what God is trying to do in the list, what God is trying to do in the list is to show you that you never break commandments two through ten without first breaking commandment one. What was the first commandment? Thou shall have no other gods before me. Thou shall have no other gods before me. When I break one of the later commandments, it's because I've already deposed God and I've put something else as God in my heart. So think about it with me. I'm going to set something on this throne. I do, not, um, I do not break the Sabbath command until I've kicked God off the throne and I've said um, that my career, my job is there on the throne of my heart. And so I will, I will break the Sabbath command about keeping the Sabbath and taking a day off of work because I'm not worshiping God. I'm worshiping my job. I'm worshiping my career. I'm worshiping my success. And the way I worship that is not just by, by putting it first, but by sacrificing other things to it. And so if I put my career on this throne. I will sacrifice my family to the throne of my career. I will ignore their, their, their spiritual and emotional needs while throwing money at their problems, hoping that they'll love me because I give them what they want. And I will not spend time with them because the thing I have to worship most is my career. And so my career gets all my best energy, all my best thoughts, all my best uh, time. And my family, they get whatever's left over. And I'll do this to the detriment. I'll sacrifice my own physical health on that throne. Maybe for you, it's not your career, but maybe you you have elevated up to this. You've elevated um, putting on appearances, putting on airs, people uh, pleasing. And so you've put appearing perfect on the throne of your heart. That as long as I can look, um, as long as it looks like I got it all together, keeping up airs as the throne of my heart. And the way I worship that is I will, I will lie to build this facade. And so I never lie until I have put something other than God on the throne of my heart. And then, I, then I'll lie to protect this idol. And then I'll sacrifice things in worship to the idol of perfection. I will sacrifice my children on the idol of perfection as I build up unrealistic standards for them and as I issue heavy-handed discipline because when they fail, they threaten my God and my God is perfection. 
And so I will be heavy-handed in my discipline. I will actually sacrifice my own physical body and health to this to make sure that, I'm, um, that, I, that I look perfect, that I look like I have it all together by overspending uh, financially to have the clothes I need, um, by unhealthy diet regimens and exercise regimens to make sure that my body is the right shape. And then I will go even one step further and I will lay myself inside of a cancer oven and call it a tanning bed in order to satisfy the idol of my heart, which is appearing perfect. Friends, this is not just those two, but this is all of them. Every uh, one of the Ten Commandments that comes after the first commandment, I don't break it until I've already put something on my heart. And I might put money on the throne. I might put stuff on the throne. I might put my relationship or my spouse on that throne. I might put uh, my kids on that throne and say, my whole life is about family. And I will wear my body to the bone. I will, I will sacrifice um, my, I'll sacrifice everything. I'll sacrifice my marriage to the better of my kids because I'm invested so much in my kids that I don't have time to invest in my, my relationship. Or I will uh, sacrifice uh, my, or finally, and we see this all the time, that I don't, I never commit adultery. I never commit adultery until I first kick God off the throne and said, what I really need to satisfy me is one more sexual experience. One more sexual experience is what I need. And what I've done is kick God off that throne and elevated uh, uh, some kind of esoteric um, experience to the, the central, what will satisfy me, what will, what will um, fulfill me, what will give my life meaning or purpose. And so I make a false God in my heart and then I worship it. John Calvin, one of the great reformers and the one uh, that specifically influenced our denomination the most, uh, he said when he noticed this, when he saw this at the heart of all of humanity, when he and Luther in conversation, I started to realize at the heart um, that I never, I never sin until I first committed a, idolatry, that I never um, lie, cheat, steal until I have first kicked God off the throne of my heart. When they first saw this, John Calvin said, Whoa, the human heart is just a factory of idols. It just churns one out. And as soon as that one, as soon as I learn that this is not satisfactory, I'll kick it off the throne and I'll put some other one on the throne. Um, maybe this has been your life and your testimony. Uh, first, you decided that an education, if you could just get into the best college, if you could just get into NC State, some of you are laughing, that might not be the best college. It's a great tech school. Uh, I just divided all of us. I didn't even mean to. I'm sorry. I apologize, Lord. Um, but you said, if I can just get into that, life will be great. And you got into it. And all of a sudden you realize, like, this, is, what is this? this can't be all of it. And so you turned and you said, maybe it's not there. Maybe it's in, um, in approval and party. If I can just get into that sorority and if they just like me, then that'll be fine. And so you sacrificed, um, you sacrificed all on the altar of whatever sorority it was and then you, um, you, you realize that wasn't enough and you're like, well, if I can just get a career, if I can just be a lawyer, uh, then that'll be good enough and then you got it to be a lawyer and you realize that it's not enough and so you've been jumping from one idol to the other because idols cannot be removed, they can only be replaced. Um, they can only be replaced. It's like minions. Anybody see the minions movie? And these minions, these little yellow creatures have to have a boss to follow. And as soon as that boss is deposed, they submit to another boss. I've never seen a more annoying and brilliant graphic illustration of what the human heart looks like than a collection of these yellow one-eyed minions. It's a heartbreaking movie because in the movie, minions, and the, these minions... Huh, fascinating. 
You, yeah, you guys get to go off script because the rest of the sermon's not here. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. Um, <laughs> somebody stole it. Uh, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> so in this movie, minions, they, they, satisfy, they, 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 wor- they worship, they serve an evil boss. And the boss uses them and manipulates them and, and ultimately puts them in dangerous situations. And that is what idolatry does. You see, idolatry promises something it cannot deliver. You and I are built for God on our heart. And with God on our heart, we have uh, peace and serenity. But idols can't give us peace and serenity. The best idols can give us is oblivion. The best they can do is just numb us to the point where we don't feel anymore. We get this um, when we uh, get so antagonistic we won't let people in close. Uh, Other times, um, we do this uh, through something like a chemical manipulation of our body, through drugs or alcohol, where it promises us peace. It will take the stress out of our life, but it doesn't give peace. It does not give serenity. It just gives oblivion. It just gives the fog of nothingness. And so we see in minions how the, the thing that we want to fix our life is actually destroying our life. And that's what happens. These actually create um, a cycle. Look what happens here again. In uh, Ezekiel 14, we You see, first we set up an idol in our heart. And when you do that, your heart shrinks to fit the idols and and your heart starts to become hard. It starts to become like what it worships. Whatever you worship, whatever you spend your time thinking about and daydreaming about, you will start to become like. And so our hearts start to shrivel up. Start to shrivel up and we become less. And so instead of serenity, we get oblivion. Instead of uh, intimacy, we get lust. Instead of... um, contentment instead of contentment if i just had uh, the brand new iphone then 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 we get greed we get greed and it starts to shrivel so our hearts and our feelings start to go crazy then next it says they put a stumbling block before their eyes you see idolatry actually blinds me i can no longer see the world correctly i've been studying this passage all week and it didn't hit me until late this week honestly none of the commentaries helped me on this this phrase put a stumbling block before their eyes but he's just saying they now see the world through their idol they now can only see through the lens of their idolatry and so everything has to justify their idolatry and they will filter out Um, any truth that does not line up with what they think is most important. You know this experientially. Let me just pick a sin, a sin of bitterness, resentment, and revenge. Bitterness, resentment, and revenge. If you are bitter to someone else, you will have to maintain a sense of moral superiority to that person. You cannot resent a person if you know at your heart you are as bad as they are. You can't do it. You can't do it. You'll start to have compassion on them because you know uh, that you want compassion on you. And so instead, you'll build up a sense of moral superiority. And you will do this two ways. First, you will ignore any good things they do. You will write them off. You will minimize them. You say, well, he's he's a good daddy. And you'll, you know, he's a good daddy, but he's an awful, 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 awful. So I'll minimize this one thing so that I can elevate their failures. And I will be filtering out the truth that this is just another human being who makes mistakes like me. And then I'll have to do the inverse to myself. I will have to minimize all my own character defects, all my own failures, and elevate all my own uh, moral successes to the point where I am, I put myself on a pedestal because I'm comparing my best to their worst. In reality, I've moved out of 
the real universe, and I now inhabit a self-justifying world, I will now be able to justify all my own actions. They will make perfect sense to me. I will live inside of a world uh, that everything is justified. And when everything is justified, and when my heart is calloused, and I no longer fear the consequences, I can no longer feel the pain that I'm inflicting on other people or on myself, it leads to the third thing, which we saw in verse six. It says, your detestable practices. That um, idolatry of the heart will numb my heart till I can't feel consequences. It will deaden my brain and my rationality to where I can't see what's happening. And finally, it will come out in my hands through detestable actions. And finally, it'll turn, that cycle will keep going and I will become, my will will become completely enslaved to the idol. You see what's happening here is an addiction cycle, an addiction cycle. The Bible says, and it shows us again and again that sin All sin is actually an addiction. It works just like an addiction. And if we were to look at a specific addiction to something like drugs or alcohol or pornography and sex or to video games or to eating disorders, they would show us in micro, they would show us um, in concentrate what all sin looks like in the macro. All of it is this um, self-medicating and self uh, this self-medicating and self-sabotaging action that is meant to fix me and yet it's destroying me at the same time. I get to the point where I can no longer see reality. The consequences don't matter. I will give up all in my life in order to continue this cycle and I will justify it to anybody who tries to stop me. That's why I was praying a minute ago that if God doesn't show us, you will not accept this because you can't. You will be deluded and justified. And so what do we do? What do we do? I know I'm out of time. And so we see what we do. It says in verse six, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent, turn from your idols and renounce all of your detestable practices. Repent, turn from your idols and renounce all of your detestable practices. I'm fascinated by the 12-step movement because the 12-step movement in, the, uh, in its beginning grew out of a Christian fellowship called the Oxford Groups. And these people, and so um, as 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 the 12 steps were forming as they were coming into crystalline. They were just um, pulling directly from Jesus's teaching in the Bible. They were just drawing straight out of the gospels. And so they start off by acknowledging that I have a problem, acknowledging that I am a slave to something, that I cannot by myself overcome the slavery of myself. By myself, I cannot rid my heart of its idols. And so then it says, you have to believe that there is a, a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity and submit to that power. Invite God onto the throne of your heart. Invite God to the throne of your heart. You know what's crazy about the 12 steps? It's not a program to stop drinking. It is a program to find God. And if you find God, you will stop drinking. It won't happen overnight. It's not an easy process. And that's why it says, it says, repent, turn back to God, invite God back to your, to, to the throne of your heart. All week I've been hearing a Jenny and Forrest Gump. You can sit here if you want. You can sit here if you want. You can sit here if you want. And I feel like that's what my heart needs to be saying. Every time I come to worship, every time I sit down to Bible study in the morning, every time I stop and pray, all I'm doing is you can sit here if you want, Jesus. This is your chair. I'm going to get out of it. Will you sit back down and just talk to me? Help me. I need you here. This is your seat. You can sit here if you want. You can sit here if you want. And then it says, repent, turn away from your idols and renounce all of your detestable practices. The second part of repentance is not settling, not settling for half measures, not settling for half measures. When you put God back on your heart, you do war against the things that war against your God. 
Remember earlier we said we would sacrifice everything to preserve our appearances. Well, now we will sacrifice everything to preserve God's position in our life. Everything. Everything. And so if I'm trying to repent of sexual promiscuity, then it may mean that I can't go certain places, that certain friends will be completely cut out of my lives, that I don't watch movies above a certain rating, uh, that I do not read certain, um, I don't even go in certain areas of uh, bookstores or gas stations. If I'm trying to repent of, of anger, then it means I'm gonna have to avoid uh, the things that inflame my anger. So I might have to turn talk radio off because they are, those are fear-mongering hate dealers. I think I just said that out loud. But I'm going to have to stop being content with half measures, and I'm going to have to wage war on them because God deserves my heart. And when he's there, do you know what will happen? Do you know what will happen? Everything I was trying to find in my idols will come to me in the only place it can. I will relearn my value from God because God has said, you are worth my son. I will relearn my security because God said, I am your mighty fortress. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. I will relearn my serenity because I will know that if God is for me, who can be against me? It will take years. It is a daily practice of saying, you can sit here if you want. Satan, flee from me. Idols, you are false gods and I will not worship you. Let's pray. God, would you bubble up the idols to our, in our hearts right now? Would you wage war on them? We invite you to attack the idols in our heart, to take back what is rightfully yours. Do not let us give ourselves to another. Do not leave us in the arms of lovers less wild than Jesus. Do not let us commit adultery against you by sinning against you in our heart. Do not come rescue, come ravish us again, come woo us and call us to yourself. Come and be our God and we will be your people. Come take over all of our lives. If you just prayed that for the first time, then you are a Christian and you didn't even know it was happening. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Because God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, let us worship God with our tithes and our offerings. You can also put your planned giving card into this plate, and that will get it to the right place.